Strauss Zelnick is a turnaround god. He has revitalized so many companies. He's also incredibly jacked and works out constantly. Um, he has a really, really long and interesting career that touches tons of different points in media and Silicon Valley, interestingly. And he also owns GTA or owns the company that, you know, builds GTA. So Rockstar Games is owned by Take-Two Entertainment or Take-Two Interactive and Strauss Zelnick took over Take-Two Interactive in 2007, I believe. And so I want to go through his whole career because it touches on so many different interesting moments in media and tech. And he's just very different from a normal crazy founder that we listen to on the show. Um, he doesn't even play video games and he's running the company that produces one of the greatest video games of all time, Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption. Um, he, he's just a boss basically. And I've, I, I talked to some people who have worked for him and um, basically he's just incredible at management. Uh, you know, I always think of myself as like a tinkerer, an engineer. Management has always been the hardest part for me. I don't think I'm a terrible manager, but it's it's hard for me to really scale up and be managing a lot of people very effectively. Um, so there's a ton to learn from this guy, and I, I want to get better at this stuff. So I, I really have, been, have enjoyed digging into his strategies and his lessons. Um, and uh, he, he's a fitness, fitness machine, as I mentioned. And if you start studying him, you'll just start working out more. Um, he wrote a book on fitness, Becoming Ageless, that's uh, pretty good. It's definitely for you know an, an, an older person. Um, it's how to age gracefully from your 40s onward, essentially. But um, there's some good tips in there. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. Um, and so let's go and study you know, Strauss Zelnick to understand how to turn around underperforming companies, manage creative teams, and get in the best shape ever. What else could you want? Um, so why should you care about this topic? Um, you might, may have never heard of Strauss Zelnick before. Uh, his wiki is just remarkably short for how much he's done. Uh, I've been researching him for like a week now and I have like 10 times as much information as the Wikipedia page. It really should be much bigger. Um, but just to give you a scope of like what his career looks like now, he runs Take-Two Interactive, he's the CEO. They have $27 billion market cap. They're slightly off of COVID all-time highs, but the stock is doing very well. And a lot of that's in anticipation of GTA 6. Uh, Strauss has put out some forward guidance. Uh, he hasn't said, or he it, GTA 6 has now been announced with the trailer. Um, but essentially, they've, they've projected that they're going to make much more revenue in, I believe, 2025. Uh, and the only reason would be GTA 6. Uh, then he runs Zelnick Media. Uh, ZMC, Zelenic Media Capital, uh, which is a private equity firm. He started it with $300,000 in, I believe, 2000. And now he's raising close to a billion dollars for each fund. Uh, it's not like a venture capital firm. They buy existing businesses. They do like one deal a year. Um, and we'll go into some of the deals that he's done. Obviously, Take-Two is like the biggest and most important, though. Um, and uh, he, you know, really focuses on operational excellence. His whole thing is being able to come in, write the ship, deal with all the crises, get people aligned, cut costs, start growing. And he's just done this again and again and again. Um, and you'll see that he keeps getting, you know, tapped by these really powerful media people who recognize that he can make their company work 
even if they have something great, maybe they have a great movie or a great artist and they want to take it to the next level. They want to make a they want to make more money with it. They want the business to actually work. These guys are creative entrepreneurs. They want to go off and you know think about the crazy thing. Strauss comes in and, and just makes the company run efficiently. And he's just done this again and again and again in his career. So a little bit of background. He's born in 1957 in Boston. His name is actually Harry Strauss Zelnick, but he goes by Strauss, which is a way more badass name, in my opinion. Uh, Strauss is actually a German nickname for an awkward or belligerent person, which is interesting because he's not, he's definitely not awkward listening to any podcast with him. And he doesn't seem belligerent. I mean, it seems like he's probably like, you know, hard nosed, knows what he wants, doesn't back down. Um, but it's just a funny, it's just a funny nickname to think that that's what Strauss means. I don't know how true that is. I just looked that up. but. Um, there's, but there are some great anecdotes later in the story about you know his negotiation skills. Uh, he has a really tough childhood. His mom dies when he's just ten years old. Uh, he was the second oldest of six kids. I'm sure he had to step up a ton, and he had a brother who died in 1995. So he's had these really tough family tragedies to deal with. But he has really strong coping mechanisms. Obviously, fitness is one of those. He works out with his family, um, and just in general, I mean, I, I, I'm a strong believer in fitness as a way to manage stress. And so, even though he's born in Boston. He grows up in South Orange, New Jersey, and his siblings start calling him the Prince because he was so determined to be successful. Like, even as a kid, he knew that he wanted to run a media studio or a movie studio and make films, which is kind of crazy. Like, I feel like some people, if they're a kid, they might say they want to be an actor because they see the actor on the screen. Maybe they understand that there's a director. There aren't that many super young people that understand how business works and how, like, what the head of a movie studio is. I remember at one point, when I was really, really young, I, I'd made a website on the internet just by uploading some HTML, but I didn't realize that like the big websites on the internet had companies behind them um, just because I was like a super young kid. But he, you know, kind of has like management in his blood and just like a nose for understanding what, you know, how these companies work and who runs them. Um, so he wants to break into the movie industry, um, but he wasn't a talented creative. Like he couldn't just write an incredible Hollywood script for a movie and then take it there, sell it, and then you know sail off to the, the, the next project and go from there. He needed a pedigree, and his parents had gone to Harvard, so he grew up in this you know elite you know family, and he assumed that he would just get in as a legacy. But Harvard, he went to a pretty big public school, and Harvard had traditionally only accepted the top three students from his graduating high school class. And he was a decent student, but he wasn't in the top three, and so he gets denied from Harvard, and he's crushed And he, because he didn't really apply anywhere else. He just kind of assumed he was, got too cocky, uh, but, he, but he, he, he had put in an application to Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Um, so he goes there, and completely transforms. He graduates in the top of his class in 1979. He's 22 years old. So he's just very, very focused on, um, on, on his academics. And he, you know, just starts getting absolutely straight A's. Um, and he realizes that structured education is what works for him. Obviously, for some people, they don't need university or structured education at all. They learn on the job. They just go start companies. You know, they, they drop out. But for him, he loves grinding, doing hard things, competition, and most importantly, he wants to get revenge on Harvard for turning him down. So <laughs> instead of going back and trying to get just one Harvard degree, he gets two. So he applies to the JD MBA program. And while he's there, he does internships at Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, and Viacom. And 
if you think about those three things, like what do they all have in common? It's like the perfect encapsulation of what his career is now. Um, you know, you have all the skills necessary to run a media company and acquire a media company like Take Two. You know, do buyouts like investment banking, like at Goldman Sachs, consulting, turning around businesses, that's McKinsey, and then media, obviously, at Viacom. And so these three internships were pretty important. I didn't find much about his time at Goldman Sachs, but while he's at McKinsey, he meets this guy, Don Gogel, who was a partner at McKinsey. And Don is still one of his mentors to this day. And, uh, and that's because Don went on, for, he left McKinsey and he became the chairman of Clayton Dublier and Rice, which is one of the oldest private equity firms in the world, or probably in America too. Um, and this makes sense because later on, Strauss goes and starts a private equity firm. I'm sure the first person he called was Don Gogel, who'd been running you know, a private equity firm for, for years and was the chairman and really understood how they were structured, understood who you need to get in what seats to make it work. Um, and so uh, it's so interesting that you know, just from you know, a brief internship one summer, uh, he still has this like mentor like decades later. Uh, and this is something that we'll just see again and again throughout the Strauss-Zelnick story is like he meets someone random and then a decade later, he's like, oh, my old friend can solve this problem. And then he does. And it's just amazing. Um, so while he's at Viacom, uh, the media company, uh, he has this interesting job. This is such a wild story. Um, uh, they, you know, sit him down. He's this intern. I mean, he's not just a complete intern because he's a JD MBA from Harvard. So he's like kind of given real things to do. But uh, they tell him, you need to go through and review movie contracts that we have in our library to make sure to, to determine whether or not we can sell these things internationally. And they give him 10,000 movie contracts. And he needs to go through and determine if Viacom can has the legal right to resell these properties. And so most of the contracts were identical. So he figures out that after researching them, they thought it was gonna take the whole summer, but he figures out that Viacom does have the rights to these old videos. Only 10 Frank Sinatra movies were excluded from this. And so even he's just an intern. They expected him to take all summer doing this project, but he finishes it in two weeks. Uh, again, just like in intense grinder. Um, and so it's an amazing windfall for the company because uh, like, like Viacom's just gonna print money here. They, they, they didn't know, like this was just lost money. They, it was complete opportunity. And so everything that, they, uh, everything that they sold, every incremental sale of an old movie to, with these international rights, they would go sell it internationally. That was just pure profit because they didn't have to make the movie. They just had the rights. And so, they're just printing all this money so they give Strauss an office and an assistant even though he's an intern and he's 21 years old and and then he starts getting invited to board meetings like what a legend it's just it, it, you hear about like you know the amazing 21 year old who built a company and stuff but like you don't hear that many stories about like the amazing 21 year old who's just crushing it in corporate America and I just love this story because it's like it's just, the, you know, this is the 1980s in a suit, and, you know, in Manhattan. It's kind of like, you know, Wall Street. It, it, you know, it's very, very close to that. Um, and he's just grinding his way up. And so before he graduates, Stra Strauss goes to visit a guy named Brian McGrath, who was running international TV programming at Columbia Pictures, who he'd met through his summer at Viacom. And so 
I, I think what was going on was they were distributing films together. So it was like, you know, Columbia would make a movie and then Viacom would sell it internationally, something along those lines. Uh, and Strauss wants a job at Columbia. Uh, Columbia wasn't hiring, but Strauss pushed through and got the job anyway. And so he graduates from uh, the JD MBA program in 1983. He's 25 years old and now has like this incredible pedigree and experience at three, you know, name brand firms, Goldman, McKinsey, and Viacom. And so, uh, you know, the first job out of college, he jumped straight into management in Hollywood at Columbia Pictures. And just to give you an idea of what Columbia was working on at the time, they were doing a bunch of cool stuff in the you know mid 1980s. Uh, they had the animated TV show He Man. They also had a TV show called Ripley's Believe It or Not, um, which you're probably familiar with. And then they made the original Ghostbusters and Karate Kid during this time. Um, and so Columbia. This is such a weird, like all of these old companies, they all have super weird corporate structures where it's like one guy owns a, you know, like a, you know, factory and then all of a sudden he owns a movie studio too and it all gets rolled up and it gets crazy. Um, Columbia was kind of like that. It had just been bought by Coca-Cola for $750 million. Um, very weird. We don't think about Coca-Cola as like running movie studios these days, but this whole idea of like content to commerce, content and commerce, it goes back you know, decades, clearly. Uh, you know, today, Logan Paul has prime beverages. Mr. Beast, uh, Mr. Beast has Feastables. Um, product placement is very important, and it goes back decades. So uh, it's funny that, you know, you come into Columbia and you're actually working for Coke because Coke is a bigger business and more profitable than the movie industry, which is very, very hard. Um, and so, again, Strauss is working on international rights. Basically, a TV show will get made, but then they need to figure out if they have the rights to go resell that show internationally. Uh, same same concept. Um, this is how these 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 companies are making money at the time. They have this big catalog of things that they made. Now they can distribute them internationally. That's free money. Let's go do it. Uh, and so contracts can be unique and often international isn't really thought through early on. So a filmmaker comes in, says, "Hey, we're, we want to make this amazing movie." Everyone's like, "Yes, yes, that's great." And then like somewhere randomly in the contract, it says like you can't sell it in the UK, but you can sell it in Germany, and you need to go through and figure that out. And the actual deal to sell these like old movies might not be that high, so there's a very high cost. So Strauss wants to stop sitting there doing these reviews. He decides that. Columbia should build a computer system to automate rights management. And this is in the middle of the 80s, probably extremely like janky to build software back then. Um, so he goes to the technology team and, and pitches them this and says, hey, I'm doing all this work, you know, looking at these rights management deals, these contracts. We need to just put all this in the computer. And so then when we, when we green light a movie or when we sign a contract, it's all just stored as metadata and then we can just query it like a database. Um, this is like kind of cutting edge at the time, um, but seems so obvious in, 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 uh, in hindsight. And then today it would be like, uh, you know, some, some kid would just, you know, uh, upload it to ChatGPT and everything would be like, you know, immediately processed, even if it was uh, like a terrible scan. Um, but the technology team goes to Strauss and is like, we're too busy to build you this custom system for this, for, you know, you're just the new guy in your 20s. Um, so Strauss goes back and says, well, uh, actually, my boss asked for it. So are you too busy for him to do it? And the technology team still says, no, like, oh, your boss is not that important. And so then Strauss comes back and finally tells him. I think he's completely faking this, but he tells him that Faye Vincent, who was the current CEO of Columbia, had personally asked for the system to be built. 
And so the technology team, instead of going and like reality checking it, because they don't want to bother the CEO, they just build it. <laughs> and, and so it's like a complete fake it till you make it moment, but Strauss delivers and the system is crazy. The system helps his division double revenue in the quarter that it's implemented. And all that new revenue is pure profit because they're just selling the rights that the company already owned, but they didn't know that they could license out internationally. So management sees all these new profits coming into this division and they go and ask like, who's responsible for this? Like what changed here? You guys were making like X and now you're making tons more profit. Like what, what happened? And so instead of taking full credit, Strauss, uh, you know, he probably could have gotten away with that, but instead he tells the Columbia leadership team that it was his boss, Brian McGrath, the guy who brought him in. And so he kind of returns that favor, McGrath gets promoted, and he brings Strauss with, with him. So now Strauss is a vice president. And so he's just like climbing up the ladder so fast. Like he gets into an organization, figures out a problem, solves it, and then gets promoted. Just all, like, it's very, very quick. He's really, really good at this like corporate ladder maneuvering. It's so interesting because like, you don't see this a lot in Silicon Valley because the, most of the stories are just like, the organization didn't exist and then the founder created it. Um, but these are really, really old companies and Strauss is coming in and, and having an impact. And so he's still a few layers down from the CEO. And so he jumped ship to a smaller studio called Vestron pictures. Um, and they were independent. And they were the largest independent home video company in the United States, which is kind of like a superlative, but in a very small niche. Um, but essentially, you know, it's like we're talking about like making VHS tapes. And then independent means they're not owned by one of the major movie studios. Um, and they were like a pure play. They were just focused on, on home video. And so uh, this was new, uh, like VHS tapes and, and home video was the new media of the day. Like back in the 80s, it wasn't YouTube and podcast feeds and Twitch streams. It was basically VHS tapes and then pay TV like HBO, which we've talked about in the past. Um, and so going to Vestron allowed Strauss to enter uh, a new and faster growing market. This is very similar to him getting into the video games business later on. It, like, it's always better to be earlier on the slope of an exponential curve than growing steadily at a late stage business like Columbia. But it's hard because that exponential curve, it has more risk. And if you're at that late stage company, it's very prestigious. You know, oh, you're vice president at Columbia. Like that's very serious as opposed to, okay, now you're at Vestron. Like this is a smaller independent shop. You're, it's not, you're not really taking the biggest swings. Um, and he wants to basically run the place. He, he wants to be in charge. Um, uh, but he starts as the head of corporate development. Um, and so just nine months in, he gets promoted to president and chief operating officer of the company. And this is where, like, this is the bread and butter of what Strauss does. He's not in the CEO role yet, but in terms of actually running the business, making sure like maybe not making all the creative decisions and not and not really setting like all of the strategy, but in terms of actually making sure that, you know, the, the right people are hired, they have the right resources, the bills are getting paid, they're not getting overbilled, like the the different um, business partners, all the all the contracts are ironed out, all the things that go into operating effectively. And this is a very, very unique skill. Great operations people are, are very hard to come by. And you'll meet you'll meet founders in, in Silicon Valley all the time that are like, oh, I have 10 million ideas, but I just need an operator. Because it's really, really hard to be great at operations. Um, and But Strauss is. And so even though Vestron's small, it was the largest independent public 
entertainment company. And so, you know, he's kind of gotten his childhood dream. He's 30 years old and he's fully running a movie studio. And so now he has to actually decide what movies get made. Because again, he gets he, he gets promoted, and uh, and now he's looking at actually greenlighting things. And so one of the first movies he greenlights is Dirty Dancing. And I I think he told a story about how he didn't he didn't actually like the script or the or the you know the idea, but he really liked the team. And so he just kind of makes a team bet. And there's probably a lesson in there about you know f- founders being very key and you know people mattering more than you know the 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 the, the dollars and cents and there's and, and that carries through. Um, and so Dirty Dancing wins an Academy Award and it becomes the highest grossing independent film of all time, which is just insane performance. And he did this like, it was like one of the first movies that he greenlit, it's crazy. Really, really uh, uh, amazing performance. Um, for a guy who like, he's not this, he's, he, he is creative obviously, but like he, in many ways, he's just like this Harvard JD MBA. Um, and, but he clearly has like a knack for, for identifying talent and supporting it and making great, and just just having a, a nose for greatness and not sacrificing for that. And Dirty Dancing actually held that record for a long time, all the way until Blair Witch Project, which I think was like almost 20 years later, maybe a little bit less than 20 years, but uh, that's a long time. And then Dirty Dancing, interestingly, also uh, wasn't just selling the movie, they also had the highest grossing movie soundtrack. So you're kind of getting like a double lift on your revenue, way more profit on the project. And so he's doing well and he's clearly a rising star, but Vestron is not the biggest shop in the game. And so 20th Century Fox recruits him to become president and chief operating officer. Now, how did he get this job? So here's what I think happened. Um, it's, it's hard because he hasn't actually talked about like he, he just said, oh, 20th Century Fox recruited me, but I, I, think, I think I put it together just by piecing together the projects. So Strauss is running Vestron and a producer named Joe Roth has been producing movies for about a decade. And so Joe Roth, he's actually still making movies, by the way. He did Fast and the Furious 9, Gray Man, Anyone But You, which I really liked. And if you're looking for a fun uh, romantic comedy, a good date movie, definitely recommend Anyone But You. Um, so, but anyway, this guy, Joe Roth, it's 1988 and Roth starts a production company, like his own production company called Morgan Creek Entertainment. And while he's there, he produces a movie called Young Guns, which becomes a box office hit. And Vestron got the international rights to Young Guns. So I think this might be the project where Strauss met Roth. But if it wasn't Young Guns, it was probably some other movie where basically Roth greenlit a movie, he pays to get it made, he, he, he needs to make more money from it, so he goes to Vestron and says, hey, make a bunch of VHS tapes and sell them internationally. Uh, thanks. <laughs> and, and, and they cut a deal. Um, so they probably met on one of these deals. And, um, and this connection is important because in 1989, Roth becomes chairman of 20th Century Fox. And so Roth recommends Strauss to Barry Diller, who's the chairman of Fox Inc., which owned the movie studio and the other media assets. So very quickly, Strauss is fully running a major movie picture studio. And it's basically him, then Barry Diller, then Rupert Murdoch, who owns all of Fox. And so he's in this very, and those are like massive, massive names. Like, <laughs> like we, you have to remember, like we're 30 years ago, but now, you know, Barry Diller and Rupert Murdoch, even back then, huge, huge names. And so um, Diller and Murdoch, they want to bring order to some of the chaos at the studio. They want the trains to run on time. So Zelnick 
they, they, they tap Strauss to become president and chief operating officer. So again, he's coming in and just focusing on operations. Um, over the next four years, he boosts profits by cutting costs, but he gets some bad news. He's managing 1,200 employees. Fox is doing $2 billion in revenue, but Fox was struggling when he joined. It's, it's a turnaround. But this is where Strauss, like, this is, this is his bread and butter. This is where he's great. Come in, find a good opportunity, find extra rights, squeeze more out of, you know, doing more with less. This is his, uh, this is his like, key, key um, uh, success, you know, strategy. And so Fox was, at the la Fox was last place at the box office when Strauss joined. Um, but he got the job done, and within a year, Fox is first at the box office and stays there for three years while he's running the place. And so Joe Roth, uh, the guy who I think brought him in, uh, is running the creative part of the business and clearly making good creative decisions. Um, you know, during this time, Fox hit it out of the park with Home, Home Alone, and they did great with Die Hard 2, Point Break, My Cousin Vinny, The Sandlot, a bunch of great movies from that time. And so Joe Roth eventually leaves. I'm not exactly sure why, but Strauss gets passed over for the CEO job, which he probably wanted. Um, and so Peter Chernin comes in to run the company, and Strauss is doing a ton of work as president and CEO, COO, but he's not leveling up, so he leaves to go earlier stage. And I believe that at this point, he went to Fox and he went to Rupert Murdoch and said, look, if I'm not gonna you know, level up here as a, as a film executive and run the whole place, I wanna start a new creative division for video games because it's early, and, but I want a piece of the action. So I want equity essentially in the games business that will be owned, so like a subsidiary, and I want equity in that because I think I, I wanna be more entrepreneurial and I wanna have an entrepreneurial stake. But Rupert Murdoch says, no, that's not how we do things here. Uh, when we spin up a new organization or a new division, we pay you very well, but we don't give you equity in the in the sub, you know, uh, in the in the subsidiary. Um, so I think that's part of the reason, but there's more to it. So we'll just keep going through this. Um, it's kind of hard to piece all, all this stuff together. Um, so it seems like the upper management at Fox loves Strauss as an operator. Like we know he's a great operator. Um, he can cut costs, he can make the trains run on time, but they didn't see him as a real leader. Uh, so just six months into him being president of the company, one of his senior colleagues delivers a message to him from the chairman, Rupert Murdoch. Um, so this sounds like it's Barry Diller telling him this, but I'm not sure. It might've been Joe Roth, but it was like someone in between him and Rupert. Um, and so this guy comes to him and says, Strauss, we think you're really smart. We think you know the business really well, but we think you have absolutely no leadership skills, uh, which is like a huge like, you know, hit. That sucks because he's like, you know, a Harvard MBA. That's like the whole point is like you develop leadership skills. And so Strauss had come in guns blazing. And even though he had the correct strategy, he wasn't great at inspiring confidence and getting the team behind him. Uh, his business coach told him that he was good, really good with words, but not always so good with the music. Like he was, he had the right strategies, but he wasn't really good at delivering them. And I think he tells a story about how when he came in, even though it was like Hollywood and it's a little bit hipper, it's not this like you know Wall Street suits thing. He shows up to work in in a suit and tie. I think he has suspenders on, and he like didn't really read the room. And then he comes in and starts making a lot of changes. He's a great operator. He can move really quickly but he's not he's not great he, he wasn't at this time great at getting people on his team and seeing him as an ally and seeing him as someone who um, is 
is someone worth following into the breach, into the unknown. And you'll see that the, he completely changes his tactic with later turnarounds. And when he comes in, he, he, he establishes his credibility much, much quicker, much, much, much more quickly in a way that is undeniable. So everyone under him says, look, yeah, this guy's crazy and he makes a lot of moves and he moves very quickly, but he's made, but he has early wins and so he can just kind of continue building on those. Um, so it's very, very interesting to see, you know, he's, he, he, he has this setback at Fox and then later completely corrects it and, ha and sees much, much more success. Um, and so part of how he changed and became a better leader in like the traditional sense, not just in terms of strategy and operations, is he's flying around from one place to another doing business and he sees a book at an airport, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And, you know, the title of the book is kind of silly, but and it was written, I think, in the 30s. But the heart of this book is really just the idea that if you want to be a great leader, you need to take a sincere interest in other people. And so Strauss starts focusing on that uh, while at um, and, and we'll see, you know, his focus on that evolve over the next several attempts to break out. Um, and so, you know, between the setbacks in leadership being passed over for CEO, it seems like, and then, you know, not being able to get the gaming division up and running, um, he quits and finds a new opportunity, and he recruits a replacement for himself out of Disney uh, who will uh, be working for his new boss, Peter Chernin. And so um, he goes to a Silicon Valley startup named Crystal Dynamics. And he's not there long, but it's still a really interesting story because it's just a you know early 90s Silicon Valley startup, which I am fascinated by. And so um, let's let's do a little bit of background on Crystal Dynamics, and there's a great story about Strauss basically turning the company around within the first week, which I love. Um, and so Crystal Dynamics was spun out of the 3DO company in July of 1992. Uh, what, so the 3DO company was one of the founders of Electronic Arts who wanted to make a new video game console. They were going to compete with the Sega Genesis and the Super NES as a next generation console. And the 3DO ultimately flopped. They released it in October of 1993. It cost $700, which is like $1,400 in today's dollars. Um, and the PlayStation came out the next year and had many of the same features, like a 32-bit architecture and CD-based games, which importantly allowed for full motion video cutscenes. So you remember you go and you know, you're playing the game and then it stops and it basically shows you just like a pre-recorded video. Um, this was new. You didn't have that in Super Mario on the NES. Uh, I, I, I don't think you could do that on Sega Genesis either, or at least not much. And so... Um, uh, the original PlayStation was just $299, so less than half the price. And obviously, the original PlayStation had phenomenal games. Final Fantasy came out in 1997. Metal Gear came out in 1998. There's a bunch of other great ones. And so the, 3D, the 3DO just had this games problem where they were a new platform and they didn't have anything to, to really build on top of. And this was the reason Crystal Dynamics got started. And so the Crystal Dynamics team was solid. And so you see this like, you know, immense amount of money pour into the company very quickly. Uh, it's kind of a hot startup. Um, the team, one co-founder had launched Sonic the Hedgehog and the other and another had uh, co-founded the Amiga Corporation, which made home computers, if you remember the Amiga. 
And uh, Kleiner Perkins led the seed round in Crystal Dynamics. And less than one year after founding, they go and they recruit Strauss to run the company as president and CEO. And this is crazy today, obviously, like replacing your founder as CEO in the first year. But this wasn't that uncommon back then. and uh, Strauss like really believed in the company. It's it's crazy how badly he wanted to get into video games. Obviously, he wanted to try it at Fox, uh, and he wanted an he wanted an equity stake because he knew that the category was growing. And so he goes and takes a bunch of his own money and his family's money and just buys more equity. I'm sure he got a grant because he's coming in as CEO, but then he buys more. And so he winds up acquiring between 25 and 50% of the company. And there's three co-founders. So you would assume that like, you know, if he's like the fourth, he would have 25% max, but he's really taking, you know, major ownership of this company. But there were some serious problems. So Strauss, this is like hilarious, but he didn't realize how unique each gaming platform was back then. So video games obviously aren't like movies. If you film a movie, you can show it in any theater, but when you make a game for N64, you can't automatically port it to the PlayStation. Now today we have you know different platforms like Unity and Unreal Engine that kind of allow for easier porting from one place to another. So So most games at least have the option to be on PC, PS5, and Xbox. But but back then, like building for Super NES was completely different than building for PlayStation. You had to kind of start from scratch. There weren't very many cross-platform titles. I'm not exactly sure what the first cross-platform title was. Um, But, you know, getting locked into the 3DO was a huge problem because Strauss shows up and says like, okay, so we're building games for the 3DO. Um, that's fine. How big is the market for 3DO? 3DO hasn't shipped. There's no one using it. Their market size is zero. They're hoping that 3DO will be a massive success, but it's a huge, huge risk. And he's just put a bunch of his money in, his time. He's 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 bet his entire career on this thing. Really, really tricky. And so Crystal Dynamics, they have a great team of creatives. Like they're making good games. Um, they have video game developers and designers, but they're locked into the 3DO. And so. Um, he, you know, Strauss is very worried that this is going to be an uphill battle, even if the launch is successful. And of course, like it wasn't. So, um, so he calls up Kleiner Perkins, like the first week on the job, maybe the first day on the job and tells them like, look, betting the farm on the success of the 3DO is way too risky. And what's interesting is that they didn't like this. Like the VC wanted him to, the VCs wanted him to focus on the 3DO. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, probably because 3DO was just kind of like the hot new platform and everyone thought that, you know, they, they weren't really aware that the Sony PlayStation was gonna come into the picture. They kind of thought the 3DO was going to be the PlayStation. Um, and so, um, Strauss is like, look, I'm the CEO. I own a bunch of this company. I don't, I decide the strategy, we need to be a multi-platform publisher. And hilariously, like he's right, the 3DO did fail. Even though he didn't really understand the differences between the platforms, he understood the business aspect of platform risk. So he might not have understood, he might not, he didn't play the games, didn't know how the code was written, he's not a programmer, but it doesn't matter because he's, his business his business skills are so solid that he can come in there and outperform the founding team and Kleiner Perkins and like everyone else and identify this problem and then just go and solve it immediately. Like just, uh, just legendary move. Um, 
And so, so he's like, we are a multi-platform publisher. He calls up Sega and Nintendo to make games for them because they're the big players in the space and they would be the logical place to extend to, but it's a disaster. And so he meets the president of Sega and, and the president of Sega tells Strauss, like, look, Crystal Dynamics, you recruited one of your co-founders from Sega. Remember that person that launched Sonic the Hedgehog? They came from Sega. We don't like you. You poached from us. So you, we are not going to give you a license. And you have to have a license to build games. You also need dev kits. Um, but but you, but all of the all these hardware platforms are 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 locked, and you have to have a license um, to develop a game and distribute it. So uh, and then the same thing happens at Nintendo. All like the entire Crystal Dynamics engineering team had been recruited from Nintendo, basically. So Nintendo's not happy with them, and so Nintendo says, "No, you cannot have a license. Get out of here." And so. Um, so Strauss is calling people, trying to make something happen, and fortunately, Sony was just about to get into the video game business, and they were down to play ball. So Sony didn't have any third-party studios yet to make games. Now there's tons of third-party studios that make games for PlayStation. Uh, you know, Call of Duty is made by Activision. They put it on Sony, now they're owned by Microsoft, but and they have it on Xbox, but they'll still be producing it for Sony. They're third party as, as far as Sony's concerned. Um, and fortunately, Strauss had an old friend, of course, he always has an old friend when he gets in these situations. Uh, he has an old friend at Sony who is the new head of Sony Interactive, the one making games, not Sony cameras, for example. He's, he's working on games, so he knows this guy. And so by day three on the job, <laughs> <laughs> he gets to Silicon Valley. Uh, by day three on the job, he realizes that there's this 3DO strategy issue. And by day seven, he's gotten a deal done with Sony and has PlayStation dev kits ready to go so Crystal Dynamics can be a multi-platform company. Like, that is just insane execution. And it's just, yeah, it's just such, such, such fast execution. And and it shows everyone there, you know, pretty, pretty quickly that, like, um, you know, may, maybe they didn't realize it until it was, you know, until the 3DO flopped, but it seems pretty clear that like if you if the CEO comes in and you're like ah I don't know about this guy he seems to move really quickly he's kind of demanding I don't know if I like him and then he he makes a really really strong strategy decision and you're like ah, I don't know about this I kind of like the 3DO we should have just stuck stuck with that but then if it works out you're going to be like ah he was a genius he was right and so this is kind of part of the Strauss strategy. Um, and so after averting the first crisis, um, Strauss gets to just executing as he usually does. He, brought, he brings in HBO and a few other organizations as investors. He does a deal with 3DO uh, to ship a game called Crash and Burn with every console, which guaranteed some sales and profits. And he also spun up a new publisher called Star Interactive, which would publish third-party games in partnership with Crystal Dynamics. Um, this is kind of weird. I don't understand the full structure here. It seems like it's like this new joint venture that, that Crystal Dynamics would have equity in, but then also get a royalty from and also get some payments from. Um, it, was, it was kind of unclear why there was this like new company starting at the time, but um, that feels like something that's pretty standard in the media industry. You see it with like, you know, everything that happens at like, there's Fox Inc. and then Fo 20th Century Fox and then Strauss is trying to start like the interactive division of 20th Century Fox and it'll be its own company. Um, these things are all kind of like really intertwined meshes. Um, but this new company, Star Interactive, they, they just failed to hit their $30 million fundraising goal. And so they can't get it off the ground. And um, 
And in March of 1994, Strauss has been consulting for a company called Bertelsmann Music Group, or BMG, as it's commonly known. And BMG had agreed to handle the marketing for Crystal Dynamics outside of North America. And so, like, this makes sense. You know, Strauss is trying to, hey, we got these games, we got to sell them. We can't build out a distribution team or startup. We can't build out a distribution team in Germany uh, or Italy. So, but Bertelsmann Music Group, we'll, we'll go into the whole BMG thing, but like, it's a huge organization. So I'm sure they have someone in Germany and then that person can show up and say, hey, we got this Crystal Dynamics video game. You want to carry it in your store? Um, so he's he's brokering these deals. He's consulting for BMG. And and eventually it, the, the relationship grows to the point where Strauss decides, it decides that it's time to leave Crystal Dynamics and join BMG full time as head of BMG's North American operations. And there's probably an element in here where it's like he realized that you know, Crystal Dynamics was doing okay, but not big enough. It seems like he's kind of going back and forth between, you know, the the big company like, uh, you know, Fox, and then the small company Vestron, and then the big company Columbia, and then the small company Crystal Dynamics. And it's really, he, you know, he's searching for that sweet spot where it's, you know, he can, he can be the CEO, he can own the company, he can grow a lot, there's a lot of upside, and obviously the, this all culminates with, you know, the, the Take-Two uh, acquisition, but, um, but he's still kind of, you know, dialing in where he fits best throughout this, and BMG is, uh, is very, very close. It, he gets so close to executing, like, his core, his, his, his like, final, final strategy here, um, but it, it, it's a great story, so we'll, we'll run through it. Um, so BMG was another turnaround, uh, but this is where Strauss excels. He spent six years there, and he was ultimately successful. He got promoted to chief executive of Bertelsmann's BMG Entertainment, and here we finally come to the beginning of the Grand Theft Auto story, which is the whole reason why I started researching Strauss Zelnick. I didn't just want to do some random episode about this guy. Um, I was like, what is the story of Grand Theft Auto? And then all of a sudden, I went down the rabbit hole. Um, and so BMG had been in the music business basically forever, kind of. It was a joint venture created to merge RCA Records with Bertelsmann's Records. And basically, if you trace the core assets, they go all the way back to 1929 which I, I can't name a single artist from that era. It, it's so old. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, and, and the, the crazy thing is that like, this is like relatively their new division because Bertelsmann actually started all the way back in 1835 as a publishing house putting out writings about the Protestant revival music. So they're like, oh, this music thing's like, you know, this is, this is our technology effort um, in 1929. Uh, <laughs> but uh, when Strauss gets to BMG, you know, the company is a mess. This, this always seems to happen where it's like, you know, great, great founder, great CEO, but then like some division gets a little bit messy and they got to bring in the, the, the big guns, the Strauss, Zelnicks of the world to like turn it around. So the North American business is doing about $2 billion in sales. And while Strauss was on the path to becoming CEO, um, BMG was doing some awesome record deals. They signed Dave Matthews Band. They also had Notorious B.I.G., Wu-Tang Clan. They actually had Notorious B.I.G. during the East Coast, West Coast hip-hop rivalry that eventually ended in the tragic deaths of both Biggie and Tupac. And he, uh, and so he's like, you know, looking at all these different 
all these different sub labels and genres. Uh, he's still selling a ton of Elvis records and is generally focused on growing the entire catalog uh, while operating the business at an increasing profit. Like it's it's uh, it's you know a basic thing. Like like put great creatives in, you know, give them the freedom to go make great decisions, and then make sure the trains run on time and the business is is performing. So. The management at Bertelsmann was ready for Strauss to take BMG to the next level. And so they asked him, they say like, hey, you know, you're doing well. The music business is doing well. Why don't you expand? Why don't you go into the movie business? Because you have experience in the movie business at Fox and at Vestron and at Columbia. This seems great for you. But Strauss knows how hard the movie business is. And he knows that like it's going to be really, really hard to build a new sustainable movie studio in Hollywood. And from his time at Crystal Dynamics, he knows that video games are gonna be the next major media category. Like Crystal Dynamics didn't get the mix right with the 3DO and all this other stuff, but like he knows that like, like getting into distribution is, is a much, much more solid category for something that's growing as fast as, as video games. So BMG already had distribution locked into all the key places where you'd wanna sell video games. Like if you remember back in the day, like when you went to go buy a video game, you did it at like a Best Buy that would also sell music. Or you do it at you know some, a lot of the record stores, uh, even like Tower Records back when I was a kid, you could go in there and buy video games because someone who comes in and sells them the catalog of music is also selling them video games. And this is like, this is BMG and a lot of these distributors, you have the distribution, why not expand? Why not sell more things? And so they also have a marketing team that can help promote video games. So you want a billboard, well, you're already gonna put up a billboard for you know, the new Dave Matthews album. Uh, why not put a billboard up for the new video game? And so uh, BMG has distribution and marketing all the all the basic infrastructure to really start building a video game distributor and expand and so the team signs off at bmg and they say yeah go go do this strauss and he starts building bmg interactive and the actual game development would happen at independent companies so all bmg had to do was just kind of like you know, assess the creative talent, assess the market. Okay, what is this game about? How would we pitch this? Um, does this game seem good? Does it seem well built? All the all those things. They don't actually have to do the development and make sure that the game gets made. Um, so, but because they're just going to do the distribution and marketing. And so they BMG Interactive goes and they build up a pipeline of forty t different titles, forty different video games, and they're ready to go. And then all of a sudden the bosses changed their minds. There was a new CEO at Bertelsmann, the parent company, and he doesn't like the plan. He doesn't get video games. So he tells Strauss, look, I don't understand this business. I don't know why you've invested in it. I want you to divest it, sell it off. And so all those games were ready to go. They had already spent the money to develop titles and prep for distribution. This was all sunk cost, but it didn't matter. Strauss argued that even if the games flopped, BMG would still get the money they had invested in the titles back. The deals, the, like the deals were very favorably structured. Remember, Strauss is a master deal maker. He gets this stuff done. But if they sold the business with unreleased titles, it would basically have no value. They'd, so they'd just get cents on the dollar. But the CEO didn't care. He insisted that they sell BMG Interactive and so Strauss does what he's told. And he goes and he sells BMG Interactive to a tiny public company called Take-Two Interactive. And they don't even get cash for this. They get stock uh, because it's such a, you know, a, a BMG Interactive is like such a nascent 
entity, um, but they get basically somewhere between nine and $14 million worth of stock. It's kind of unclear based on the timeline. Um, and this was a significant chunk of Take-Two because Take-Two was still really, really small, but they were public. Um, so they can do this like stock swap. Um, and Strauss wants to hold the stock at BMG on the BMG balance sheet. And so if things play out in the video game world, they will see some of the upside. But the CEO of Bertelsmann insists that they need to sell the stock and get the cash. And the cash was a rounding error at this point. Um, you know, this is a multi-billion dollar organization. I think they were worth or did five billion. And so the CEO is somehow like, oh, we need to get this $9 million from this random project back, like sell it. And so they go and sell the stock in Take-Two Interactive. And it's a huge mistake because the first title that they release from the newly acquired BMG Interactive purchase is Grand Theft Auto. And so obviously like the stock starts going up and the, 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 like, the, there's a huge, huge value there that BMG could have had and they just never really had that position. And so, so Strauss had built up BMG pretty solidly, but, and so they were now the second biggest music publisher and they would have been the first, but their two biggest rivals merged. So they were technically bigger. Um, and his whole, and, and so like one kind of final closing note on BMG before we move on to the next section. Strauss's whole career is very circular in the sense that like he meets some important people that, had, that advise him and help him later on. And at BMG, he worked with Michael Dorneman who ran BMG and eventually joined the, joined the board of directors at Take-Two. Um, and so he just keeps doing this where he meets someone and then like years later, uh, they're, they're important to his story and his, and his strategy. Um, and I think it all stems from like that when friends and influence people working out, just being very social and uh, just being like a, a good friend and just someone who uh, mentors a lot of people has a lot of mentors and uh, and maintains relationships over a very very long t long period of time, um, and doesn't seem like he pisses very many people off. <laughs> so it was time for something new, uh, but he would cross paths with Take Two Interactive in a few years. So he's basically like created Take Two's. Take Two's distribution arm and then go and sold it and just watched it start growing with GTA. Um, and Bertelsmann does a reorg of the media assets in 1999. Strauss resigns from BMG and he wants to start his own thing. No more bosses. He'll be in charge this time. And at this point, he has experience literally everywhere in the media, like video games, check, home video, check, movies, check, music, check. Like, it, he, like there isn't really a category that he doesn't understand. He knows the entire landscape, so he starts an investment firm. Uh, Zelnick Media Capital, it's a private equity firm focused on buying media companies and operating them the way Strauss knows how. Uh, remember, he's turned around like three struggling companies at this point and had the opportunity to do even more if he hadn't been stifled by management. And so this is like the perfect thing for him because he has he has the experience in every part of the industry. And so when he sees a company that's poorly run, but in a good niche, he can go and buy it, turn it around, install his management, and and then ultimately sell it for, for a profit. And so um, ZMC doesn't do a ton of deals. They basically just do one per year for the first several years. Uh, and I don't have time to dive into all of them. I'm sure there's an interesting story behind every single one of these companies. Um, but here's a brief sample leading up to him uh, getting back into the Take-Two interactive story. So. Uh, I think he starts the firm in 2000. Obviously, they spin it up, start searching for things. Uh, 2001, shortly after launching the fund, he buys 
Columbia Music Entertainment. 2003, he buys a direct marketing firm named Director Holdings Worldwide. 2004, a market research firm named OTX. 2005, Naylor, a, B a B2B media and advertising business. 2006, ITN Networks, an advertising broker. So you can kind of see that it's like all things that are related to, to media, advertising, how these things monetize, um, direct marketing, market research. So you can see there's, there's opportunities to put these businesses businesses together to revitalize them like but they all touch like the core media assets that he knows um, but they operate in kind of like smaller niches and might be poorly run or very old or ready for a turnaround which is Strauss's uh, you know bread and butter and so then in 2007 he finally returns to take two interactive and I cannot believe it has taken this long to get to take two we're 50 minutes in and I were just getting to the whole reason why I started this, which was GTA and and in take two. And so, um, but there's just so many interesting parts of the story. Like I, I think all of this stuff is very fascinating, honestly. Um, and so, okay, brief, brief history on take two before Strauss Zelnick takes it over. So it's founded by Ryan Brandt in 1993 with $1.5 million in startup capital. And they published some games. I hadn't heard of any of these, but maybe you have Star Crusader in 94, Hell, a cyberpunk thriller, which actually sounds kind of badass in 1995, and Ripper in 1996. Uh, so their unique strategy was casting well-known actors and actresses in their games. So they get like Christopher Walken and Paul Giamatti. And this is... Uh, they got those two, they got a bunch of others, but this is like standard stuff now. Like famous actors do voice acting for games all the time, um, but they were like some of the first ones to do it. Um, and and I think that was kind of like their their niche or like their their hook. It's like, oh, why are you buying this like a random game called Ripper? Oh, well like Christopher Walken's in it or something. I don't know if he's actually in that one, but um, you know, like leveraging star power and celebrity deals to amplify distribution. We see this today with all sorts of different and celebrity cameos. Um, but uh, anyway, Take-Two goes public in 1997, four years after they've, uh, they've been started, or they started, and they raise $6.5 million in the public markets, and then they raise another $4 million privately later that year. So they have you know, 10 million bucks fresh in, 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 in hand. And then they also have their stock, which is now publicly traded, and so they start rolling up small game developers and distributors. Um, in 1998, they cross paths with Strauss and they buy BMG Interactive from him for newly issued stock. Again, like they didn't need to go and raise the money, they just gave him stock. And, uh, and so that's just like a very interesting strategy that's only available to them because they're, they're publicly traded, so their stock is very accurately priced, so they can do this much more, much more quickly. Um, you can obviously do it if you're a private company, but it's faster if you're, if you're public. Um, and, and it's more enticing because then Strauss can go sell the stock, which he did, um, or he was forced to. Um, but most critically, they also go and buy DMA Design Holdings, which is the developer behind Grand Theft Auto. And I'm going to do an episode all about DMA Design and Grand Theft Auto specifically. But uh, this cost them $11 million in cash. But it was the deal of a century because now they owned both the, the developer and the distributor of Grand Theft Auto, which was about to be huge. And so uh, they also bought the Civilization series and the developer behind it. Uh, the, they bought the series and the developer of Civilization for $50 million total. I think it's Firaxis or Fire Axis. Um, and I've actually played one of their games, XCOM's pretty good. Um, 
And so Civ and related games like XCOM, they've done well, but obviously don't compare to GTA. So uh, for like half the price of the Civ series, they got GTA and it's like one of the greatest assets of all time. Um, so very, very phenomenal. Um, and they also bought like a ton of other, uh, a ton of other game studios and kind of created this like, you know, roll up. Um, and so now uh, we get to the takeover, how Strauss got this asset back. So Strauss understands how valuable the intellectual property at Take-Two is because he helped develop it. Uh, but the company is a mess. It's the perfect opportunity for the take-around giga-chad to come in and fix everything. Um, so there were so many problems at Take-Two. The founder and CEO, Ryan Brandt, had been indicted by the SEC for backdating options from 1997 to 2003. Basically, uh, I think if you backdate the option, the tax liability is lower. And so he's able to you know, hire someone and give them an option, something like that, to buy the stock and then backdate it so, so the, the cost basis is less. Um, I think that's kind of what was going on. But anyway, not good, indicted by the SEC. Uh, the company also had to settle charges with the FTC for including a hidden sex scene in GTA San Andreas. This is the hot coffee mod, if you remember that, um, which is its own story. But you know they're in trouble with like, like two different regula regulators, the SEC and the FTC. Like this is not good. And Take Two had also charged, had also settled charges with the SEC for quote unquote parking inventory with distributors right before the end of the quarter to inflate earnings. Uh, so they would, so they would go and. And, uh, and take a bunch of their inventory, which is just sitting on their balance sheet, and then like send it to the distributors and say, oh, this isn't on our, on our, on our balance sheet. Like this is revenue. Uh, I, uh, you know, th these are earnings. Uh, basically fraud, if you do it wrong, it's kind of unclear, but they settled the charges, but clearly the SEC was not happy. Uh, but this is a disaster, and this is perfect for Strauss. Like he is the buttoned up JD MBA from Harvard, tons of experience, just by the numbers, come in, like, you know, he says there's only one thing that will get you fired if you work for him. It's lying. Like he's just like this honest straight shooter who's going to come in and turn this around. It's the perfect company for him. Um, and so a bunch of Take Two's investors gang up and they submit this competing proxy vote. And how it happens is very, very interesting because normally when you buy a company, you have to pay a premium to what's on the market. Uh, you have to buy the stock from all the investors, but. ZMC and Strauss, they didn't have to price take two. They didn't have to figure out what the stock was actually work, worth because uh, take two had a plain vanilla Delaware unamended charter, which means they hadn't put in any poison pills or any of these crazy you know, takeover defense things to stop someone from taking over your company. Like if you follow the Twitter saga, uh, when Elon Musk was buying it, there was this poison pill that was put in after the deal, all these different things. Um, and it can be, it can be very, very difficult. You might need like a super majority to take over a company, but take two was just a standard plain vanilla Delaware unamended charter, no changes. So that meant that ZMC could show up at the annual shareholders meeting and they could just take a floor vote. And in the event that the floor vote went in ZMC's direction, they could just fire the entire board immediately and the management team would take over the company, which is just crazy. Like you can just show up to the, the floor, the, the shareholders meeting, say, hey, I wanna run this company. And if everyone who owns the stock says, yeah, 
you're in, which kind of kind of makes sense. Like that, that it makes sense that that would be the default way things work. Um, it, it's it, it's elegant. It's like the people that own the company should decide who runs the company. Um, but you know, it's obviously uh, uh, complex, and uh, and this is not this is not the way things normally happen. You, you you know you think about like you know Facebook, like the super voting, super majority, all these different defenses that founders put up, which are good. I think it's important for founders to run their companies for a long term. But this was a this was a disaster company, as we saw from like the indictments. Uh, they're like going through like you know pretty serious legal problems, um, and the company had been so poorly managed that the stock had all fallen into the hands of professional investors and hedge funds. Like the actual core employees and management team, they don't own very much of the company anymore. Um, and so all the investors and hedge funds, um, they are desperate for new leadership because the, you know, the, the management team has sold all their stock, basically, or lost it all. Um, they're, they're not performing well, so they're not, they're not maintaining control over the company. And so under SEC rules, Strauss and ZMC were allowed to go and solicit up to 10 holders. So they can go and talk to 10 different stockholders in Take-Two beforehand and ask them to vote for ZMC at the annual meeting. Um, and they wound up getting 88% of the vote. And that is staggering. Like it, it just tells you exactly how bad Take-Two was at the time. It was complete laughing stock of a company. And so the uh, I don't want to be too mean to the people that were running it. I mean, who knows? They were probably trying. Um, but it, but it, it was a disaster. And this has never happened before, and it never happened since. Uh, this just doesn't happen. Like it's, it's just very very rare that a company is so poorly run, but also can just be flipped like this. And so. ZMC doesn't need to write a check. Like they, they, they had to pay their legal fees, and if they hadn't won, they would have had to eat those fees. But they didn't actually own a share of stock at the time of the takeover. They couldn't because if they owned the stock, there would have been different SEC rules that applied, and they would have run the risk of creating a group uh, when they spoke to the shareholders, which I think is is something in SEC rules about takeovers. Uh, it needs to be like very like organic, like you show up and you make your pitch. You're not like working in the background. I think it's something like that. But anyway. The group wins, and on March 30th, 2007, and Strauss comes in as non-executive chairman, and one of his partners at ZMC, Ben Fetter, comes in as CEO. And so they take over the company, and immediately there's a crisis. So um, they get control of the company on Friday morning, and by Friday night, there's this massive crisis. One of the labels had intellectual property and a Hollywood studio was about to steal that intellectual property and make a game out of it. So we don't know what the game was, but you can imagine that it's either something really old that we've never heard of that doesn't actually matter, or it's like Grand Theft Auto. But let's just imagine it's Grand Theft Auto because it's easier to visualize. So. Uh, in Hollywood, it's very hard to protect a name, especially a name like Grand Theft Auto, because um, it's just a generic term. It's just the name of a particular crime. And if you start locking down names, you can kind of run out of them. Like, <laughs> there's only so many. So uh, you can't copy the story, you can't copy the characters, any of the underlying intellectual property, but it's pretty hard to, to, to lock down a name. And so you could imagine that a studio was going to come and say, hey, we're going to make a Grand Theft Auto movie. Uh, yeah, all the characters will be different, but clearly people will show up thinking it's a Grand Theft Auto movie. And if they have even similar themes, they're going to sell a lot because it's valuable. And so Take-Two owned a lot of legacy IP, and usually Take-Two would just file lawsuits. And the way Strauss talked about like this legacy IP thing makes me feel like 
the movie that uh, the game that was getting stolen by the movie by the movie studio was actually like much older. So I'm not sure. But anyway, usually Take Two would just file lawsuits. They had tons of lawsuits. Um, but Strauss likes dealing with people directly. Remember, he's like the how to win fr friends and influence people guy. Like he he doesn't he's not just this like you know. You know raucous, you know, litigious guy who's going to go around and cause a bunch of problems. He gets on the phone with people and sorts it out. So today, Take-Two is 10 times the size it was, and they have barely any lawsuits pending. Like I think a year ago, he gave an interview and said they had two, and then they were with patent trolls, and they had like no option. Um, and so he knew the people running the studio because he's the movie guy, remember? So of course, it's like, again, one of those things where Strauss knows someone and then later in his career comes back and he can, you know, have a, at least a pick up the phone and call them. Um, and he says, look, I'm not gonna sue you, but I'm going, like, and I, I don't want like a big legal mess. Um, but so the, the, the Take-Two team calls Strauss and tells, Strauss, like, hey, you're the new boss, but we have a protocol for this. When we when we find out that a movie studio is stealing one of our games, we file a lawsuit. And so Strauss says, no, 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 I'll, I'll handle this. So it's over the weekend. He calls his friend over at the movie studio and asks him, like, hey, can you just not do this? <laughs> uh, it would be great if we could just, like, make this problem go away. Um, but the guy says, no, you know, take two is a joke. I don't think you got what it takes to, to stop me. I'm going to steal the name, make the movie. Uh, you can't stop me. I, I, I have legal grounds. But Strauss, of course, has a JD. He knows about the law and he knows some interesting strategies here. And so he says, um, he says, look, you can go and make the movie. I'm going to let you invest $75 million to make this movie. And then two weeks before it comes out, I'm going to go to court and I'm going to get an injunction that will prevent you from releasing the movie. And this is just so genius and creative because that completely screws them over because it's pretty, I, I think it's easier generally to get an injunction than, uh, than actually like win a lawsuit. So instead of, instead of fighting the lawsuit, dragging it out, and then they get to make the movie and then they make all the money, instead of that, the injunction just throws them off their schedule just enough that they put all this money into marketing, they're ready to go, release day is coming up, and then all of a sudden they can't release the movie and all that money goes to waste. Even if they try and get it out later, even if they have the lawsuit and they wind up winning years later, the, like, the, the moment has passed and they've invested so much money into marketing. And if you can't market the movie for months beforehand, you're not gonna be successful. So it's such an effective threat. And so it, it, it really works. It like completely screws up their business. Like it's this beautiful understanding of like, he knows the guy, he knows the business, he knows the law. And so he brings all these skills together and just delivers like this perfect threat um, that he can be serious about. And it's not a fake and he's not bluffing. And so this crisis happens on a Friday, and by Sunday, he's negotiating with the studio to make the problem go away. And so on Monday, he comes into the company, it's like the first real day on the job, and he tells everyone, like, look, we had this issue, and I was able to get rid of it without any legal fees, no headaches, we don't need to focus on this, on, on this at all, we can get to work on what really matters, not fighting some stupid law lawsuit with a movie studio. Let's go make great games, and that's exactly what they do. And so from there, Strauss was in a great position to take the company forward. He had proven himself as an effective leader on day one. And it's a complete turnaround from like the early days of Fox where, you know, he comes in, he has a good strategy, but he doesn't deliver it well. This is like, he he's, he's working over the weekend on Sunday, finding a very like virtuous, mutually beneficial, you know, he's like, he's, he's really like standing up for his creative team that created this name, uh, created this game, whatever it was, and being like, look, no one's going to steal your work. 
so you come in and without requiring anyone else at Take Two or any of the publishers to do more work, he has a win and can show up as you know the the the, the owner of this company in a, in a really positive way. And so so for the next four years. Ben Fetter is CEO, and it doesn't go great. Uh, it's it's okay. The financials are pretty inconsistent, and there's still some lingering controversies. Hard to say like how much of it was just like it's going to take a couple of years to write the ship, or was he just not amazing? But either way, he wasn't destined to be the CEO forever. Clearly, didn't work out, and Ben Fetter steps aside on January first, twenty eleven, and Strauss becomes CEO. And then, interestingly. Uh, kind of flash forward, Ben Fetter goes off to spend time with family in Asia and eventually becomes the head of North American partnerships at Tencent, the Chinese gaming giant. And Tencent now has a deal with Take-Two to distribute this uh, free-to-play PC version of the NBA game, which is kind of interesting. Um, and so Strauss brings in another ZMC guy. Remember, ZMC, his, his PE firm, they have a management team and they can, bring in, uh, they can bring in managers. So he brings in Carl Slatoff as a president of the company. And both of them have been in those roles ever since. Like, it seems like they're a very solid dynamic duo that they're like really crushing it there uh, as this like president and CEO role now. And so the, the financial improvements over the time that Strauss has been there have been staggering. Revenue has gone from under $1 billion to over $5 billion in 2023. Gross profits have gone from just under $250 million to over $2 billion, which basically means that their gross margin has doubled, which is like I incredible. But it actually brings it in line with like what you would expect with software. Um, so they're making like almost 50% gross margin, which is great. And the company had negative free cash flow in 2007, but in 2021, it had positive cash flow of nearly a billion dollars. Uh, and they've since flipped to investing in GTA 6, so cash flow is negative in 2023, but they're still doing very well, and the stock's doing great. Uh, and the company has basically gone from a $2 billion market cap, I think that's about what it was when they got acquired, uh, to $27 billion in market cap under Strauss, all while delivering games that are universally regarded as the best to be ever to, uh, best ever to be made. And, and this is an interesting point. Like, it, 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 there's one thing where like Strauss is just like this JD MBA. He's such a good businessman. He's good at turnarounds. He took a two billion dollar company to twenty seven billion. It's impressive. Yeah, but what's really interesting is that like, on the other hand, he's really able to let creative teams go off and spend years developing something that's so good it will pay off for a decade. Like they're still making money from GTA Five, and you know you compare that to Call of Duty, which has changed to an annual release. And they, it makes a lot of money, but it really isn't a product that anyone loves anymore. And and it's it's pretty it's pretty crazy that he's been able to create a uh, a company that is so obsessed with like craftsmanship and creating things that are just loved. I mean, I remember I played Red Dead Redemption 2 recently or a couple of years ago when it came out. And it was just a phenomenal experience. It was just a good product, uh, something that I was like happy to pay for. And I've also like bought the most recent Call of Duty and like, it's not anything to write home about. It's not something that like you'll remember. Like, and it, it's cool that he's able to do both. Like, he's creating great art, but he's also creating great financial results, and that's like that's very very rare. So, I love it. Um, there is another interesting side tangent in his career throughout uh, Take Two, uh, which is that. Strauss started spearheading lobbying efforts at the Entertainment Software Association. So most people know the ESA because they host the E3 Expo where they showcase new games. And I think gamers are not really excited about E3 anymore. There's like some problem. I think COVID was really bad for it too, probably. Um, but the real interesting stuff is happening in lobbying with, with, in Washington. 
Um, so the ESA puts together white papers and briefings for politicians on, on how to regulate games. And this was a really, really big deal um, because there was an immense amount of pressure on GTA during the heyday. Remember the hot coffee scandal was a genuinely like national news. That was like a very, very big deal that like kids were getting access to this like very low polygon, very pixelated sex scene, which I've seen like a blurred version on, on, on YouTube. And it is like, it's so silly to look back on like how tame it is. Uh, but at the same time, I understand why you wouldn't want your kids to watch that. Um, and so uh, GTA has also been blamed for teen violence, mass shootings, like everything. Like there's been a ton of uh, moral panicking about video games. And so Strauss is like the perfect person. And so he's become the, the chairman of the ESA and uh, is you know focused on finding this middle point for regulation. Like what can be in, what can be out. Uh, you know, it's basic negotiation. And he actually went through a similar uh, kind of arc during the 90s when he was at BMG um, because they had you know, signed all these like explicit rappers, the Wu-Tang Clan, Notorious B.I.G. And there was a question back then about like, is this going to be poisoning the youth? Is this going to lead to, you know, social unrest? And so he'd had to kind of negotiate that and figure out, OK, we we will release explicit music, but there will be, an, uh, you know, an explicit label on there. But it also needs to be high quality. Like we were not just going to release something that's, you know, that's that that's you know a bad product i think that anyone can recognize that notorious big or wu-tang they're just phenomenal artists and then they also happen to be explicit and so yeah you probably shouldn't listen to it if you're if you're if you're you know a child maybe and you're you know don't want to learn cuss words i guess but um uh but 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 the, the what really really matters is the quality so the story of Rockstar Games and GTA, you know, obviously that deserves its own episode. So I'm going to do that next. Uh, I'm going to focus on the Hauser brothers, which is which are fascinating. Uh, it'll probably be a lot harder because they're basically recluses, but there's a lot of interesting anecdotes about the games that we'll focus on. Um, but let's uh, keep going and uh, wrap up the career of Strauss Zelnick because that's what this one's about. So NBA 2K, uh, aside from GTA and Red Dead Redemption, the other massive title at Take Two is the NBA 2K series. And this is a series that's annualized like Call of Duty. They release one every year. Uh, and that makes sense because there's a new basketball season every year and new players to model in the game. So the, the fans aren't upset. Whereas like with the Call of Duty, the fans are saying like, no, no, it's okay. Go away. Take two years. Uh, you know, make it great. Give me a great story. Give me a great multiplayer experience. Come up with some innovation. With basketball, the fans are just like, hey, just, just show me, you know, the latest players. I don't want to be playing last year's game. And so... Take Two used to be used to be competing with EA because EA had the NBA Live series, and EA Sports has basically a title in every single uh, category. They had Madden, you know, they have golf, Tiger Woods, I think, um, a, a couple others. They've even like you know MMA and paddle tennis and all these different games. Um, but they used to compete with uh, EA directly with NBA Live, um, but they dropped their license in nineteen in twenty nineteen, and then Take Two did a deal with the NBA to extend their license for seven years. Now this cost them one point one billion dollars, but estimates put NBA Two K at making more than a billion dollars in revenue every year, and so uh, it'll like more than pay off. It's about a fifteen percent royalty margin, which is pretty nice for the NBA. Um, and they also have some ancillary projects related to NBA 2K. There's the NBA 2K Online, which is that free-to-play PC game I mentioned that, that Tencent pr promotes in China. And then they also have the NBA 2K League, which is their eSports league. You know, eSports is small, but it's growing, and it, it, it's cool. Um, then, then mobile is more of a crazy, you know, we'll see how this all pans out element of Take-Two. Uh, so 
Strauss, by his own admission, was late to the mobile gaming world. Like in 2007, mobile gaming wasn't nearly as big as it is today. And I think the success of GTA probably just demanded the team to focus on what was working so well. Like they were, like console gaming was growing and GTA was such a phenomenal success that you know, it'd be hard to say like, hey, let's go to the new, new thing. Like in terms of Strauss, like he's been in VHS tapes, he's been in movies, he's been in music. Like this is the new thing. Video games are the new thing. Console gaming is new. He doesn't need to jump to the next, next thing like so quickly. Just like he's not working on VR right now. He's kind of, you know, waiting, seeing what, what will play out there. And so um, they actually did wind up acquiring a few different mobile game companies over the years. Uh, and I don't have time to go into these, but you know, you can look them up. Social Point 2017, Play Dots in 2020, and then Nordius in 2021. Uh, and then in May of 2022, they bought Zynga. And this was a big mobile acquisition. Like you probably remember Farmville back in the Facebook games days. Uh, they have a bunch of mobile games now, like tons of free to play titles. It's way more than Farmville. Um, and this should, this is like a good way in theory to expand into mobile, but lots of people are skeptical that this deal will pencil out because the high price that Take-Two paid for the company. It was in, in like the billions, and the company is really struggling. Um, like Zynga is not having a great time because Apple changed uh, the rules around uh, tracking. They have this app tracking transparency change. It's that pop-up that you get when you install a new app. It says, ask app not to track me. All about the privacy push. Great marketing for Apple. Obviously differentiates them from Google, which is tracking you everywhere. Uh, it's a great strategy. But Apple doesn't care about mobile game developers. And mobile game developers are not exactly the most sympathetic, you know, group of organizations in the world because a lot of them are like kind of social casinos. They have a lot of pay to win dynamics. No one's really thinking that, oh, you know, we should have like a, an award show for free to play mobile games. Uh, there's a lot of like negative feelings about them. They feel like addictive and, and they pull a lot of people out. They're, they're predicated on like getting a whale to come in and spend like thousands of dollars. Now, where, where you sit on that, it just kind of depends on the structure. And, you know, if you go in knowing, hey, yeah, I like spending money on, you know, virtual goods, like that's fine in my opinion. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to compete when you're when you're when you're coming from that side against Apple which is like this like beloved beautiful brand that stands for so much has all these celebrities on board and Apple's message is like privacy like we're not going to spy on you and so Apple rolls out ATT and it just crushes all these mobile game studios because they'd been using the app like the the app tracking data like what you do in the game would link to what happens on Facebook or TikTok or Instagram or any of these places that would run ads and so they would see okay you know you you bought one of our titles and you played it a while ago let's go show you an ad for the next cool title oh it seems like you like you know um you like medieval themed titles or you like military themed titles, we're gonna show you ads for those over here. So they would do all this interesting stuff and, and it was very, very profitable. It was all this crazy user acquisition arbitrage. They'd pay really high rates. Um, you, I'm sure you've seen these ads all over Instagram and, and just the internet constantly for a long time. Um, but after ATT, like, like the tracking data was broken and a lot of these companies had to rebuild. Now AppLovin acquired a bunch of other ad tech in the stack to try and like kind of vertically integrate. Zynga was kind of caught with their pants down and it's kind of, it's kind of a question about how, how Zynga will dig themselves out of this hole. And so a lot of people are, are, are kind of 
you know, sat, like, like they just down on Take Two as, as in, in terms of like their their Zynga acquisition. But it's unclear. Like maybe maybe they'll figure it out. There there is there is a world where you bring in some of the like Strauss has talked about bringing in some of the 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 great intellectual property like making a mobile game like making a mobile version of Grand Theft Auto that is actually great uh, and that that seems appealing and that seems like Zynga would be like a perfect uh, fit for that. Um, and Call of Duty and, play, and PUBG have done that as well in Fortnite too, where the game on mobile is actually great. It's not like some cynical cash in. Um, and I think uh, I think that's what like the fans would like hope happens, but uh, but who knows? Um, and so uh, you know that kind of closes out the Take Two stuff. I want to go into you know one last personal thing about his health, uh, his health fitness obsession because that's very interesting. Like you really can't talk about Strauss without mentioning his fitness routine. The guy's a machine. He's in his sixties and he looks like he's a forty-year-old CrossFitter. It's crazy. Like go look at a photo of this guy. Um, but uh, he also wrote a book about health and fitness called Becoming Ageless. And it's a very interesting like middle of the road between the extreme health nuts. Like, like over the last year, there were two major health influencers that kind of took over the internet, in my opinion. And it's very weird because they were both named Brian Johnson and they were both the exact same age. I think they were like 43. Uh, and so one Brian Johnson is the liver king and he's on this heroic dose of steroids and performance enhancing drugs talking about how you need to be primal and go back into the past and just eat liver and raw meat and throw a spear and like, you know, the ancestral tenets. He's actually extremely entertaining. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's, that's one Brian Johnson who's 43. And then there's another Brian Johnson who's you probably know him as like the man who spent two million dollars a year to live forever and he's all about like the future artificial intelligence uh, like having these supplements and he's on this heroic regimen to alter his physique and appearance and he's doing all these crazy things he's living very healthily like this pure diet like just like all these different strategies and it's two it's just so fascinating because it's like two complete extremes and then of course like the whole business model between both of those guys is like you pay them to do a less extreme version so uh brian johnson the liver king he eats raw liver on tiktok and goes viral because like that's disgusting um but then he also sells like powdered liver pills that you can buy and like liver i think is good for you it's like nature's multivitamin so he sells like an easier way to access to access that and it's the same thing with the other brian johnson the performance and uh the 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 life extension guy you know he's doing he's spending all day every day doing these health regimens and uh, and instead, like you can go and get his blueprint diet and you can get some meal plans delivered and like you don't need to go as crazy as him. Uh, but he kind of shows you what like the frontier of that looks like. So you have like the ancestral guy over here and like the futurist guy over here. And like like if you haven't seen those guys, like you get you just got to go look at a picture of Brian Johnson, Liver King and then Brian Johnson live forever. And they're both like very extreme. And then you go and look at his picture of Strauss Zelnick and he just looks healthy. Like he just, I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. Like he just looks like a healthy guy. And the funniest thing is that he doesn't have some insane magical protocol. Like he basically just says like, eat healthy, don't smoke cigarettes, work out often. He has like a, a meal plan in here and it's just like, yeah, protein, vegetables, that type of stuff. And you know, oh, like work out, like do some squats, do some sit-ups, do some pull-ups. Like it's not like this insane, crazy thing, um, which is probably why it's like not like the mega viral success that liver king and the uh, brian johnson have been uh with the live forever thing like it just doesn't it 
it's so basic, but I think it's probably correct. And so his theory is that like, if you, if you follow this, uh, you can basically just live like a middle-aged person right up until you die. You can be very healthy, do everything uh, well into your 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it's clearly working for him. Like he looks great and he's super productive. And uh, he even takes meetings while he's working out to fit more in during the day, which I love. So there are four key lessons that I wanna close with uh, that I took away from studying Strauss Zelnick. Uh, the first one is find out what you really want. This is his number one coaching question for people he mentors. And it's, it sounds so simple because people just be like, oh, well, like I want, and then they rattle off a list of like, you know, family, money, health, like whatever. But that's not the same as being a 10 year old Strauss Zelnick and knowing that you want to run a movie studio. Like he is in line with what he wants. And this is a really hard question if you engage with it seriously for a few weeks. Like I know a ton of entrepreneurs and a ton of people who can't answer this question and it's hard. It's a very, very hard question to answer. And so he knew that he wanted to be a movie executive since he was a kid. He got to the top of the mountain and then he wanted to go bigger. So he went into games, he had setbacks, but he got through them. He still, he, he's actually said that he still thinks about managing 10X the capital ZMC has, uh, but he has to be okay with failure, which is just hilarious because obviously like he's the opposite of a failure. He's very successful. Um, but you know, to him, he's always setting his sights higher. So the takeaway number two is obviously, we talked about this health and fitness, genuine performance enhancing drugs for mid and late stage uh, business careers, uh, like long working days, constant flights. I don't think he could be nearly as productive if he wasn't doing all this fitness stuff. Uh, he goes on bike rides with business partners. Now there are counters to this. Like I don't think Buffett is a fitness nut at all, uh, but it certainly worked for Strauss. And I think uh, for most people, like living a, a more athletic lifestyle is going to benefit them. Um, and, uh, and, 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 it, and it flips because when you're in your 20s, like you can basically just completely disregard all this stuff and be, and be very healthy, but then it starts catching up to you. So uh, it's, it's important to like, you know, flip the switch, practice, get in the gym, start eating healthy, and then just compound that over time. Um, so win friends and influence people. He, Strauss says he rereads this book every single year. I think that tells you a lot. Uh, I think management and interpersonal skills are super underrated because people think that they're more innate. Like people think, oh, I'm a people person. I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert. But you can learn, you can very clearly learn like to be a good manager. Um, and so uh, it's very important to just be genuinely interested in the people that you work for, uh, that who work for you. Uh, give praise aggressively. This is the way to inspire people. And uh, yeah, definitely, I'm, I'm gonna read that book next. I'm already kind of reading it right now. Um, so move quickly. This is the last takeaway. Uh, the Crystal Dynamic story where he pivots the whole company to multi-platform in the first week is hilarious and awesome. Uh, and then there's the story of him resolving the issue with the movie studio that was making a movie from Take-Two's intellectual property in the first weekend he's on the job. He just responds to problems immediately and gets stuff done. Like, and it's, This is an incredibly valuable skill in business. He's never paralyzed by a decision. He just moves forward. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 su it's super, super valuable. So I hope you enjoyed this story. Stay tuned for the next one. Uh, we'll be uh, hopefully uploaded next week on uh, more Take Two, more GTA. Uh, I have a great book here on Jacked, the outlaw story of Grand Theft Auto, all about the Hauser brothers and the development of Grand Theft Auto. Uh, it's a fascinating read, so stay tuned for that. Thanks a lot, bye.